Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Hello, genies, and welcome to America's family history show. It's Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. My name is Fisher. I am your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And this is the show where you can learn a lot about how to do it, how to find your ancestors, some of the stories you can discover. In fact, coming up a little later on, we're going to talk to a professional genealogist, Carolyn Tolman from Legacy Tree Genealogist, talking about a recent case that she solved helping an adoptee identify her birth family using DNA, and it's a really touching story. Later in the show, Gina Philibert Ortega is going to be on talking about unusual sources for researching your female ancestors. You know, the names change every generation, and so she's got some sources I'd never much thought about. Yeah, you're going to want to hear what Gina has to say later on in the show. And right now, it is time to check in with Boston and David Allen Lambert, the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hello, David. How are you? Hey, gathering up stories for Family History News. Yes. How are you, sir? Oh, I am great. And you know, we got a lot of Family History News today, so let's get started. First off, how would you like to have a royal bed? You know, they always want to have one for your king and queen at home. How about one that belonged to a king and queen? Possibly. Ian Coulson thought he was just buying a regular 19th century Victorian bed from the arts and crafts movement. This four-poster bed with armorial shields on it, he bought for 2,200 pounds. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it turns out, after a little bit of research, this may be one of the only surviving pieces of furnishing of the royal family to survive the Tudor period that didn't get destroyed during the English Civil War. Really? There's more detail in this bed that once belonged, perhaps, to King Henry VII, the first Tudor king, and his wife, Elizabeth of York. Their union began in 1486 and ended with the War of the Roses, but this may also be the bed that King Henry VIII may have been conceived on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, yeah, and of course, well, we know about all of his lovely marriage yeah. situations. Yep. So 2,200 pounds was a bargain because it could be worth millions yes, of pounds. Yes, absolutely. And what a great piece of English history. Take a look at it on Extreme Jeans. The news story is fascinating, and the bet is beautiful. i got to think the antique shop has got to be kicking itself for not doing a little of their own research, right? Provenance research is something that most antique galleries do ahead of time, but you can still find some bargains on eBay. That's <laughs> Apparently true. on this catalog as well. Well, sometimes when you lose something, you find it in the strangest places. An 125-year-old lost letter to the editor was found in a book a thousand miles away in Oklahoma. So this letter, dated back in 1893, was something that somebody just found tucked in a book. But it has an interesting story behind it. It was discovered by Emma Smirker, a high school French teacher in Oklahoma, who admitted her odd hobby of researching weird things in old books. So essentially kind of like returning pictures to their owners. Right. And she did the research. And it turns out this was a letter to the editor for the Lancaster Gazette. So it looks like this letter, over 125 years later, finally got the recognition it needed. Yeah, isn't that great? She got it published, and she's getting it back to the descendants of the writer. A little bit of genealogy involved in that trip, I'm sure. Yep. You know, I always look forward to exciting things that are going on with collaborations. And with Ancestry, they've collaborated with Sundance TV to do something really special. We all know about the heroic efforts during the Civil War era and before of the Underground Railroad. And a TV show called Railroad Ties brings together six individuals that were descendants of people involved in the Underground Railroad. They meet in a church in Brooklyn, New York, 
and these stories will be told. Wow. That's going to be a great show. And that's starting this month on Sundance TV. That is true. Well, I'm always glad when people dig up things in Paris, they decided to find the burial registers, digitize them, index, and put them online. So Paris Cemetery Records, if you want to find out where your favorite Parisian is buried from the 19th, probably even early 20th century, these old registers are now searchable online. I think it's great. I wonder if I can find Jim Morrison, where he really is buried. You know, that's a funny thought, but of course, he's a little too late, I would imagine, for this uh, record set. That's true. Well, I could always hope maybe the later ones will go on. But I did find this on our blogger that I wanted to plug. And the blogger Spotlight shines on the French genealogy blog at french-genealogy.typepad.com. Wow. So this is a great little blog. talks about French genealogy. Not so much French-Canadian, but European mainland France. You might have some connections, and you may have interest, even if you're French-Canadian or Acadian, because, well, that's where they came from to begin with. Uh, So take a look at that blog. I love when news stories, TV shows like Henry Louis Gates' TV show, Who Do You Think You Are?, the Genealogy Roadshow, it excites people in genealogy. And when a major newspaper like the New York Times publishes an article like it did just recently this month called Why You Should Dig Up Your Family History and How to Do It, gives the basics. And it's not like in-depth. It's not talking about controversies in DNA or finding out that you're adopted and you were in a hospital and you know sent 3,000 right. miles away. <laughs> this is how to find your roots. And for the people that don't have a dot-com subscription, or may have just been a little bit interested in having the DNA done. This article cuts it to the real basics about talking to your family, understanding the limitations and what you could be up against, and also to be skeptical of what you find. Right. Absolutely true. This is a great thing to have the New York Times doing this. All right, David, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Talk to you soon. Okay, and coming up next, I'm going to talk to Carolyn Tolman. She's a project manager for our friends at Legacy Tree Genealogists. Go to LegacyTree.com. Boy, what a great story. She helped an adoptee with their DNA, and what a great result. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? Good, Scott. How are you? You know, just awesome. I was reading your recent blog and uh, talking about this great story of how you help some sisters reunite. One was adopted, and she's now in her 60s, and she's been looking for her birth family since her 20s. Let's talk about this and, and really how somebody like you is necessary to help people find what they're looking for. Yes. Well, Colette came to us. She had had a good life with her adopted family, and she felt it was now time. She was now ready to learn about her birth family, and she wanted our help to do it. She had taken DNA tests but wasn't quite sure what to make of her matches and and what it all meant. It was a little overwhelming. So that's where we as professionals could help her make sense of it. Yeah, I think the cousin matches are very challenging for a lot of uh, people who get their DNA results back. I think so many people just ignore them. They're just interested in the ethnicity and they kind of wander on. But when you're adopted, that means everything. It does, yeah. And it, it just makes such a difference when those matches post their tree with their results 
But even if they don't, our DNA specialists are amazing at figuring out their trees just with little clues and being right. able to figure out where they fit in the client's tree. So well, we from, make a from big maybe, in that way. Maybe something just as simple as an email address, right? I mean, can help you right. identify somebody and then plug them in and, and go from there and match them to other cousins and triangulate and bingo, there you are. Yep, that's what we do best. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Colette now. She's in her mid-60s, as I've read here, and she actually went to court and tried to get records uh, unsealed. It was in Florida? Yeah, and that's often a, a kind of a brick wall for adoptees because of the laws. And so it's just amazing that, that DNA is able to get her skirt around that yeah. situation. <laughs> and we can still identify their family without all of the legal battles. Yeah, that's right. So, and, 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 you know, it's interesting. A lot of states are now adjusting their laws just because of the fact that they're really not very effective any longer because of DNA. Right. And we have just such an open culture now where there's not a stigma and people just want to know who their ancestors are. And I, I don't see a reason for the restrictive laws so much anymore. I hope they continue to become more open in that way. What do you think it was that convinced Colette to go DNA? Well, I think it's just growing in popularity and especially in the adoption community. People are hearing success stories. We've seen them in the papers and TV shows, and, and people are realizing that it is possible. So I'm sure she must have heard of this and figured she probably had a good chance. She also had some fairly close matches in the first and second cousin range. So she was confident and we were confident that we would be able to figure it out. A matter of fact, we did. It, was, it wasn't very long before we started to build her tree and trace the descendants of the common ancestors of her matches. And we identified her parents and, and we built her tree out to the fourth generation. And we were preparing to share this information with her when a niece match showed up. Oh, wow. <laughs> in one of her databases. And... She emailed me and said, uh, what does this mean? And <laughs> Yipes, she had luckily, a hint. She was, she was beginning to get the hang of the game, huh? She was, but that's why she hired us, because this was all overwhelming. And so I actually emailed her and said, we are ready to let you know who your parents are, and, and I would like to call you. And she said, oh, yes, that would be good. And so I called, and it was a wonderful emotional experience as I introduced her parents and her grandparents and her great-grandparents to her, and we were able to figure out where this niece fit in, and we also were able to give her the contact information of her siblings, two of which were still living wow. and fairly nearby. And they were from so, Canada, right? Yes, and we had their naturalization records and how they eventually made their way down to Florida. And her adoptive family, she had grown up fairly close to her birth family, but not ever. Don't you think they often they do, were. though? It often works that way. And, and what's interesting, too, is that she was raised to speak French because the adoptive family thought she had French ancestry coming from French Canada and all that. But the DNA revealed, no, 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 no French, just Irish, that they'd come into French Canada from Ireland. Amazing. That had to really throw her for a loop because it's like, wait a minute, if I'm not French, what am I? But that, you know, that is a that's one of the common things from DNA. DNA doesn't care 
care what you want. DNA doesn't care what you've heard. DNA doesn't care what you think. DNA just tells you what is, right? Yep, it's like we say, DNA doesn't lie. Only people do, and, <laughs> and so for as various a, reasons. As a result of this, she she had uh, learned even from some of her own background research over the years that her her parents had given her up. She was like uh, the youngest uh, in the full family because they just couldn't afford her at the time that she was born in the fifties. It was really rough times, and and mom couldn't stop working, and dad was blaming himself because he couldn't earn enough money. I mean, that had to be a really yeah. tough thing, and that probably is reassuring to her that it wasn't that they didn't love her, but they just couldn't afford her. Yes, yeah. I'm sure it was difficult to know that your family had stayed whole and that you had full siblings and that your parents were married, and yet you weren't a part of that, and I think that helped to make up for it. And I'm sure that her adoptive life had been good and that she appreciates the sacrifice that her parents made. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about this contact with the niece and how that all went. Well, as far as I know, the the niece contacted her mother and said, I think we have a surprise relative. And I believe that the niece helped to facilitate the contact between the two sisters. And they arranged a FaceTime. And it was love at first sight, I think. Um, (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) (laughs) The family was very open and welcoming to her, and the children and grandchildren of her sister welcomed her, and, and they have had a close relationship ever since. Isn't that amazing? I I mean, I still think the thing about DNA, you hear a lot of stories about it, and there's that tendency to think, well, they're all kind of the same. The adoptee locates the birth family. They're not all the same. Every one of them is unique. They're all different. They have a different twist. There's a different reason maybe why an adoptee was given up. There's a different reason why a parent would say, hey, I've got to move on from this and and give the child a better life. And there are other reasons also why they, just like there are different reasons why people came across the ocean, you know, there are different reasons for this. And they all seem to react to it quite differently, too. I mean, I know some adoptees who have absolutely no interest in knowing anything about their birth family. They said, we've got enough family as it is. <laughs> and, yes, yes. You know, and yet there are others mm-hmm. who just can't sleep at night wanting to know who the birth family is. And th- this is just the beauty of uh, what's going on right now and how we can get that information, um, not only through DNA, but through professionals like yourself who can help people along the way. Yes, and as a matter of fact, Yvette and Colette's brother the last I heard, was not open to this new relationship, and he needed time to adjust to the idea. That's so not unusual, though, is family. it? That's not unusual. I mean, no. some people, especially, you know, when, the, when a person comes along and they've been working on this information for some time, they're ready to do it. But I've seen it's not unusual for the people who find out about them. They need some time as well, and you need to give them that space. That's right. Yeah. We respect that, and these are big surprises for some families, and yeah, it takes time to get used to the idea and and decide how you're going to react to it. Absolutely. So how many of these cases do you work on at a time, Carolyn? I usually have between 40 and and 50 uh, clients at a time that uh, were at various stages of their projects and communicating with their researchers and Every client has different needs and different personalities, so I stay very, very busy. And, and a lot of them are unknown parentage cases where DNA is, is helping, and they are my favorite. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's sure more fun than uh, those surprise cases, don't you think, oh. where they find out, uh-oh, we have uh, the, the not parent expected. I have had a few of those, and those have been more difficult. Yeah, that, sure. those are the ones where we don't sleep because we have to tell somebody <laughs> that information, you know, and kind of go from there. Yes. Well, uh-huh. it's it's a fascinating story. Once again, thanks so much, Carolyn, for uh, for sharing it with us. And our best to Colette and Yvette and their brother as they kind of uh, try to put this new family together. But, you know, what, what a great thing that finally, 65 years along, she's been able to figure this out and actually connect with those people that she's related to through blood. It's a great story, as always. Yes, it has been my favorite. Thank you for letting me share it. All right, Carolyn, take care, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Scott. She's Carolyn Tolman. She's a project manager for Legacy Tree Genealogists. And, you know, it's always good to hear these kinds of stories where there's resolution and filling missing holes in people's lives. And when you compare it to what we talked about last week in two segments about the woman who found that her father wasn't her father and she had to actually go and confront her mother about the circumstances surrounding her birth. I mean, what a different situation. But it's really good to know that there are both of these types of things that happen so that if you're considering doing a DNA test, know that none of the people who get the unexpected results obviously expected them. And uh, many other people, though, are able to make incredible breakthroughs and finds as a result. So DNA can very much be a double-edged sword. And coming up next, we're going to talk to Gina Philibert Ortega, a Southern California woman who's all about some unusual ways to track and find information about your female ancestors. You know, not all family history has to do with charts and pedigrees and, and just researching through the census. There are a lot of people who aren't even into any of that, who love their family history especially through things like ancestral recipes and heritage recipes. And one of those people is Gina Philibert Ortega. Let's see, Gina, you're French and your husband is Hispanic and you've got a lot of stuff behind you here to draw from when it comes to ancestral recipes and your heritage. I definitely do, Fisher. And isn't that great? Yes, that, it is. That's all about genealogy is all that international flair. Exactly. I got the English pudding on one side and I got the Swedish meatballs on the other side and stuff from Norway. It's, it's fantastic to discover these Absolutely. things. So tell me how you got going in this, because I know you're out there, you're doing panels and, and talking to a lot of people who are discovering their heritage through this. Well, you know, what initially happened was my background is, and one of my degrees is in women's studies, and I've always been interested in researching female ancestors. And as you know, a lot of people lament that they can't find their female ancestors. And so it got me thinking about why can't we find them? Well, most of the time when we research, we use government documents. Yep. And sometimes women aren't represented well in those So maybe we need to think about researching women in the things that they left behind. And one of the items that women are represented in are community cookbooks. Now, this isn't all women, obviously, but let me kind of tell you a little bit about community cookbooks. Yeah, please. Yeah, they've been around since the Civil War. And a lot of you and, and maybe Fisher, you're familiar with them. We kind of think of them as those wacky cookbooks that people submit their recipes to when they have that plastic home binding, and, <laughs> and maybe you get rid of them, right, because the recipes are so, well, sometimes they're not so great. Right, and but, antiquated, perhaps. Yeah, but actually, those have been around, like I said, since the time of the American Civil War. 
they were meant to raise funds for groups that women cared about. And I know this is hard to believe, but those would be recipes that were important to them, that were part of their family heritage, that were the recipes that they thought showed their culinary skills. And so if you think about those books, what do they have? They, they have recipes, right? Sure. But they also have names. They often are from a certain place or location. They're published by a certain type of group, uh, let's say an organization, for example, or a church. And so they provide genealogical information. When we look in the census, a census is a name list, right? Yes. Well, so is a community cookbook. And in fact, I like to think of community cookbooks as city directories of women. Because we have those women's names. We may even have more information. You know, you talked about Swedish meatballs. There might be recipes that a woman provides that has been in her family and hints towards her ancestral homeland, for example. Depending on the community cookbook, I've seen those that include everything from photos of the women to family histories. There's one that I especially love. It's about Paxton. And it's a church back east, and it includes information about their church cemetery. And this is from the early 1900s. So these community cookbooks provide us a lot of great information about women. So there's that aspect of the ancestral suit that I especially love. Now, wait a minute. Before you go any further, i got to ask, how do you find these things? Because I've never really researched it. I've certainly seen some in modern times. I've got probably two of them in my home right now. Is this the kind of thing you find on eBay or on Abe Books? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you bring up a good point. Always start with your house first or your mother's house or someone else in the family. But you can find these on eBay, and you can just on eBay search for things like the name of the location that your ancestor lived or the phrase community cookbook or church cookbook, fundraising cookbook. These are in libraries. There's actually some major collections around the United States of community cookbooks and culinary collections. And what I like to do as well is when I go to do research in my ancestors' hometown, I like to go to the library and see if they have a Friends of the Library book sale. I also like to go to the antique stores, and sometimes I can pick them up there. Wow. You know, one of the first places you should look are the various digitized book websites there are, including Google Books, Internet Archive, and Hattie Trust. Those often have these cookbooks for different time periods. See, and this is not a source that I ever have really considered, ever. That's amazing. Well, they're fabulous. And I'll tell you on my blog, Food Family Ephemera, I often spotlight these. And I'm always amazed at the information that can be found. And it's information that is ignored by most family historians. Yeah, I can see that. So my question to you then is, when you find some of these things, are they recipes that often hint at ancestry that you may or may not know of? Or these things that outright state, oh, this came from my grandmother, the kind of hint at at a long line of tradition within the family? Definitely, because sometimes these recipes will have a little introduction about how this is Grandma Smith's recipe, or I got this from my husband's mother, or or whatever. So it'll give you that. But the other thing is with food, not so much today, but in the past, food really was regional. And so what you ate on the East Coast was somewhat different than what you would eat, let's say, in California. 
And so some of these recipes are going to have that regionalness that is going to point to where the family is from. So that's an important part of it. And as time goes by, we also see food fads, right? Yeah. So, for example, in the 1800s, eating turtle soup was a big deal. It became (laughs) such a big deal that turtles actually became over-harvested because of it. And so then there were mock turtle soup recipes. And so mock turtle soup became a big deal. And so sometimes... Wait, wait, where was this, though, Gina? Where Where did they eat the turtle soup? Was it the East Coast, the West Coast, or was it everywhere? Everywhere. Now, today, you're probably not eating that in California. In fact, I've never gone anywhere in California where there's turtle soup. But you would find this maybe in Louisiana, for example, or maybe even in New York. But it used to be that everybody ate it. Hmm. I had no idea. Yeah. So food not only has that ethnic background to it, but it also has a regional background and what people ate and what was popular. When I go give presentations on cookbooks and food history, I make deviled ham sandwiches. And I'll tell you, people have an instant reaction to that. Now, most of us probably don't enjoy that anymore. But for many of us, we grew up with that. And so eating that takes us back in time. And it helps us remember things about growing up. And one time I did this, and I also added baked bean sandwiches, which is exactly the way it sounds. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's Mm. squished baked beans on white bread with mayo. And people were kind of, yeah, well, that was their response. But an older woman in the class, she came forward, she ate one, and she said, oh, my gosh, I totally forgot we used to eat these when I was a kid. We were poor, and so my mother would make these. Wow. So food is a catalyst not only for research and finding those women's names and dates and all that, but it's also a great way to jar memories and to pass down our own heritage to our kids and grandkids. She's Gina Philibert Ortega. She is a family historian, of course, but an expert regarding uh, ancestral recipes. Uh, Gina, I wish we could go on and on. We're going to have to have you back. Great. And continue and do some of this in the not-too-distant future, all right? Great stuff. Thanks so much for coming on. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. We talk preservation coming up next with Tom Perry, the Preservation Authority. And, uh, Tom, we're getting away from all the modern stuff today to talk about preserving books because there's really so much to talk about, and we've never really delved into this before. Yeah, I don't know why over the years we've never really got into books, but books are so important. My mother taught me over the years how to take care of books from her parents, her grandparents, my great-great-grandparents. So we're going to talk about several different parts of preserving books. I love this, Tom, and I know that most people have some old books somewhere, and many of them were favorite books of their people, not necessarily books that relate to the family or whatever. But I love holding a book knowing that this was my mom's favorite when she was a little girl, maybe in the 30s, or that this belonged to my dad or was a a gift from him in the 20s for his birthday or something like that. And to have these things, obviously you want to make sure they're in the best condition. Where do we start? Do we start talking about where things have been damaged or need to be restored, or is it just how to keep them from being damaged? Yes, all of those things. And over the two segments, we'll try to hit as many points as we can. The first one that I think is really important that we need to discuss is environmental conditions, which a lot of people just take for granted that a book's a book, it'll last forever, which is not the truth. One thing you want to be really careful with books is light, 
temperature and humidity. Those are your most important things that you have to regulate. So of course, you don't want books left out in the sun where the southern exposure coming through the window is gonna damage your books. You right. don't want them around fluorescent lights because they have great ultraviolet radiation that can damage them the same as you know photographs. So you wanna make sure you have like LEDs or incandescent lights or something like that. And when you're not in that room, always make sure the lights are off and the blinds are always pulled. So essentially, you're talking about creating a little dark room as your library, right? Oh, absolutely. Just like we talked about videotapes and audio on other segments, you need to make sure that you keep these things away from the light. And heat registers, it can be an outside wall, it can be a wall that's going to a food cellar or to an attic. You want to make sure you have good airflow around them where you can really keep away from extreme temperature changes and also humidity changes as well. So you have all these things that you're concerned. It sounds so much like the photographs and documents. Well, of course, it's made out of paper, right? Absolutely. The experts recommend 70 degrees Fahrenheit and about 50% humidity, which is perfect, of course, but not everybody can have that. The biggest thing you want to remember is you have airflow around everything, that nothing's so tight that it can't breathe. So that's really important. And shelving is important also. You need to make sure you always keep your books standing upright. Don't lay them on the side. Don't let them stay open because that can actually damage the structure of the book. Make sure when they're on the shelf, they're not at the edge of the shelf. They're pushed back about an inch because this does several things. It lets you see if dust is accumulating. You can see if there's any droppings and maybe some rodents or some other bugs yeah. have got in there. So you want to be able to continue to keep your books in the best possible condition. So why is it that you can't have a book on its side? Well, the thing is, it actually puts all the weight on the structure of the book and can cause problems. And leaving it all the way open can actually damage the spine. So you want to be really, really careful. You keep them standing up. And that's the same reason you don't want your book so tight. Because if you start grabbing it by the top edge and pulling it out, you're going to damage the structure of the book. You want to be able to very easily grab it by the spine and pull it out. If your books, for some reason, are too tight, take the two books on the side and kind of rock them back and forth a little bit till you can grab the spine of the middle book that you want and pull it out. That's really good advice. You're absolutely right. I think about some of my library shelves and, and how tight some of the books can get. And yeah, that could be really tough on them, especially if you take some of those books out frequently. Exactly. All right, Tom, we're going to continue with this conversation talking about taking care of your books, preservation of some really important items, I think, for a lot of families. We haven't really talked too much about storage yet. And I've been thinking about this. For instance, I had a book that was almost like a register. It really was a register. My great-grandmother took care of it because uh, she delivered babies. She was a midwife, and she kept track of uh, all the children she delivered. And that book has a spine that's been falling off, and so we keep it in a great big plastic sealed bag and then keep it locked away where it can't have any damage done to it. Do you think there's anything better we could do? Yeah, you want to be really careful. You want to make sure you use plastic that's archival plastic. You don't want to use like a dry cleaner bag. You don't want to use kitchen wrap. You don't want to use garbage bags because what happens as these bags break down, there's harmful gases that can be released that can actually damage your books. So you want to make sure that you have them in archival plastic or you have them in archival paper and that you use cardboard boxes that are what they call alkaline corrugated cardboard are there different types of books that we should be spending more time and putting in that type of archival environment than others? Well, you know, it all comes down to what's important to you, just like we talked about in audio and video. 
what your end game is going to be. So you always want to make sure that you store them in these proper type boxes and make sure you keep them in some place that they're going to be safe. You want them to never be within four inches of any kind of wall and especially the floor. If you're in an area where once in a while they do have floods, just assume that you're going to have a flood and make sure they're up higher so you're not going to have these kind of problems. Away from any exterior walls, from ceilings or to an attic that can get really hot. You want to be really careful about how you do store these and you do them by what's your priority. If you've only got so much room, you want the ones that are most important on top just in case you do have an unfortunate situation happen in your home. Yeah, right. You want to be able to even grab it to get out of the house with, right? If it's especially valuable. Exactly. And that's why labeling is so important to put some kind of a label on it to say, you know, what the book is or, hey, this is the most important. And it sounds funny at this point. But when you have a fire coming through like they had in California or mudslides and you have very little time, it's, hey, this one says first box to go out the door. So you grab that one and go and not worrying about anything else because, you know, your lives are at stake. Things are important and you want to be able to grab the ones that are the most important. So if you label them this way, you'll have a better chance of getting the right ones with you on your first trip out. Well, that makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of people have just books that are just really valuable, you know, from way back in the day. It has nothing to do with the family. There was no family connection at all. But this is all applicable not only to books but to so many documents and photographs as well. But I'm just hearing the similarities are really quite significant. That is absolutely correct. One thing we've talked about in episodes before is a good quality gun safe is one of the best investments you will ever make. You can keep your photos, your slides, your movies, your books, very, very important things in these because if they're the proper kind, whether you have a flood, a mudslide, a fire, whatever, they have been able to open these after all the debris was removed and everything inside was still fine. So this could be the best investment you could make in preserving your past. Yeah, and I should mention, I actually had a flood at my house many years ago, and I had some very important things hidden in a safe, like you just mentioned. But it was a fireproof safe, and I didn't realize that a fireproof safe is not waterproof. And so we lost some very important items as a result of that. So make sure you don't just get a fireproof safe. Make sure you get one that can save it from water. Great advice, Tom. As always, great having you on, and we'll talk to you again soon, all right? My pleasure. All right, genies, that's about all we got this week because we just don't have any more time. But thanks so much for joining us, and thanks to our guest today for bringing us some great insight into DNA research and unique sources for tracing your women ancestors. Hey, and don't forget to sign up for our weekly genie newsletter. It's free through ExtremeGenes.com. Talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us, and remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.